Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Belis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. We're continuing our Women of the Faith series in which we are talking about women from church history who will encourage us to trust our God who doesn't change. Today, Karen Ellis is going to share the story of an incredible woman named Mariah Fearing. Mariah's story will inspire you to set aside excuses and serve the Lord with gladness. I can't wait for you to hear more about her. But before we get started, I want to say thanks to those of you who support our podcast through your generous donations. Journey Women is a nonprofit organization that exists to move women to know and love God, to find their hope in the gospel, and to invest deeply in their local churches as they go out on mission for the glory of God. If you'd like to join us in this endeavor, you can learn more at journeywomen.org slash give. In this series, we are looking at the lives of different women throughout church history. The more we learn about them, the more you may be challenged to study the Bible more deeply and be better equipped to teach God's Word. If you find yourself there, know that Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary offers a variety of flexible degree options to empower you to do just that. Southeastern believes God has commanded each of us to go and make disciples by teaching His Word and sharing the truth about Jesus Christ. That's why they offer a diverse selection of certificate programs, master's degrees, and advanced degrees to help equip women to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Southeastern would be privileged to play a part in your growth in God's Word and your training to fulfill the Great Commission in all of life. To find out more, explore degree options, or schedule a visit, check out sebts.edu. K.A. Ellis, welcome back to the Journey Women podcast. I'm so glad to be here with you, you Journey Woman. (laughs) What a treat to catch up with you. Such a joy to have you on the show. As soon as I heard from the Good Book Company that we would be releasing one of the Do Great Things for God series together, Mm -hmm. I was like, well, how can I say no to that if I get to work with K.A. Ellis? (laughs) (laughs) It's a treat. I'm glad that was your catalyst because I I love that you're writing on Amy Carmichael. Yeah. Very exciting, you know, seeing her story condensed for Are We Ones. I remember reading her novel a long time ago, probably 30 years ago, and just being so impressed by her life story. So I'm glad you've taken her up. Oh, absolutely. She was such an inspiration to me, but all of these ladies are. And Mm -hmm. you have had the privilege now of writing two from this series, but the one that's coming out really soon is on Mariah Fearing. Is that correct? That's right. So exciting. So we're going to talk about her today. But first, I would love for the listeners just to get a little bit of a snapshot into your life, because this is (laughs) a minor note in a bunch of major notes that you're you're working on playing right now. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do for those who haven't had the opportunity to interface with your work. That's a good way to put it, a minor note and a bunch of major <laughs> notes. Okay, well, professionally, I'm an academic and I work with Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta. And we have a project that I direct called the Edmiston Center. Yes. And uh, the Edmiston Center is uh, an academic institution within the institution that specializes in studying theology around Christian life in the hard places. That can be anywhere from persecution to, you know, soft marginalization to persecution to martyrdom. And so there's this big academic hole 
that nobody's really writing. And there's a lot on theology of suffering. There's a lot on, you know, on um, practical theology. There's a lot of testimonies and stories, but nobody's really doing a lot of theological spade work in how do, how have Christians endured under anti-Christian hostility? So that's what we're we're kind of pioneering or exploring uh, this new academic uh, theological space. So and I get to do that with my husband, which is fun too. Absolutely. I think that we talked about that whenever you had first started the Edmondson Center. How long has it been established? Uh, we started in 2018. And uh, we've we've been doing it long enough now to teach through our whole curriculum. We have a certificate program. And we also have a lecture series where we've been hosting different voices to talk specifically about Christian endurance in hard places. We've had our first graduates, which is exciting. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we've been at it long enough now to see a few things turn over and start looking at expanding. So it's really exciting. So that's the professional. That is so exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. On the home front, I'm a mom, a stepmom. But I feel like I'm a mom because the kids have just, they're not kids, they're adults. They're in their 30, late 30s at that. But they have just warmly embraced me over the 12 years my husband and I have been married. And um, they're all the kids I've ever known. I never had biological kids. As a matter of fact, I married into my 40s for the first time. And so I didn't have biological children. So they're my kids. And uh, then I have one granddaughter who I just adore and she adores me and we have a really great time together. So um, I'm doing home things like that uh, with my husband and my, uh, my son, my granddaughter and, you know, figuring out how to grow our own food in our little urban garden and how fun <laughs> those sorts of things and how to get through school and, you know, how to learn new jobs and stick to things. And she's eight. And uh, so it's, it's a good time. It's a good time on the home front. Well, and you didn't even talk about all of your writing projects because those in and of themselves are like a full-time job, K.A.? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a professional speaker, heavily trained. I am not a writer, but I'm learning to be one. I like to say I have been, I might've been born yesterday, but I've been up all night. So <laughs> this, is, this is how the writing thing has gone for me. And I have asked my pastor, his wife, my closest friends, do not ever let me sign a bunch of publishing contracts that all come due at the same time, because that's what I'm experiencing right now. But <laughs> what a rookie mistake, right? You feel poured out like a drink offering right now, because I can only imagine. <laughs> you know, the cartoon characters when they're flattened in the road, that's that's what it feels like sometimes. <laughs> My husband just, you know, he's like, are you writing? He just knows for about three weeks, he just slides the food under the door. You know? <laughs> make, sure, make sure I stay fed. And, uh, you know, I grunt every once in a while. And then there's a manuscript. So I've been learning At 56 years old, I've been learning how to write, how to be a writer. Yeah. It's been terrifying and it's been wonderful. I started with these two children's books and then I have uh, two trade books coming out in the next uh, year. And then I have a young adult book coming out on Phyllis Wheatley in June. Yeah, well, it's the script is due next year, but that'll be in the next couple of years. So, you know, I just feel like I'm, I'm just have all these opportunities just presented themselves. And, you know, people came and said, do you want to write? And I was like, mm, you know, I'm not a writer. And they're like, well, you, we think you can give it a good, honest stab. So God's been very merciful to me um, to actually give me something to say that glorifies him and honors him and points to uh, his faithful servants throughout history. I think one of the reasons that I became interested in Mariah's story She's connected to the Edmiston Center uh, in that uh, the Edmistons, for whom our center is named, they were all on the same first African-American mission group to Congo. Mm. And uh, this was at the turn of the the last century, or century before last. 
And just going back and finding these stories, the stories of people who've been overlooked, you know, they just haven't been recorded um, as heavily as some of our other church heroes. So that's been such an honor and a wonderful encouragement and a great exercise for me, just kind of excavating these folks from history who were faithful at a time when the church is really heavily focused on the places where the church just got it wrong. And I'm like, mm, can we look at some of the places where they got it right? Because yeah. there's been some, God's kept the kingdom line of people who were faithful, not perfect, but faithful. Mm. So yeah, so that's that's kind of where I've been exploring. My research has been exploring and that's how I landed with Mariah Fearing. Yeah, that's how you landed with her. So did you discover her through some of the work that you've been doing with the Edmondson Center or when did you first interface with her story? I first interfaced with her story. I did a project with uh, Mission to the World, which is the mission arm of the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. Mm -hmm. And we did a project with them where they wanted to have a short pamphlet of significant African-Americans in missions because they wanted to, now I'm African-American myself, and they wanted to highlight the fact that when African-Americans go into mission work, they are not stepping into a stream for the first time, but we actually have this rich legacy totally. of faithful, uh, you know, carrying the gospel forward around the world under really difficult circumstances. Oh, man, absolutely. You know, finan difficult financial circumstances, cultural, social, you name it. And so I did a pamphlet of about, I guess it was about 15 people. Mm. starting with John Marant, who was um, the 17th century, a free person of color. And he, he had, had his story had been recorded. He had written his autobiography. And Mariah Fearing was among those folks. So I, I knew just enough about her for her to be intriguing. But then the more I started to excavate about her, the more I found that she was connected to all these other people that were doing mission work whose stories also had not been told. Right. So I found the I found the Edmistons. Mm. And I found uh, the Shepherd team, William and Lucy Shepherd. And their stories leap out from the page like they should make a movie about these folks, just the things that they endured as Christians. Mm. So that we could have some new heroes in the mix, you know? It's like, oh my gosh, I want to be remembered for representing Jesus as well as Mariah Fearing did. And we don't know a whole lot about her. She didn't write much of her own. We have surviving letters that she wrote back and forth. But the work that she did, is it's, it's stunning, it's impressive, it's biblical, there are pockets of people in Congo who remember her and who remember this team. Tell us like about what period of time she lived mm -hmm. and, and worked and where did she grow up? Uh, she came from Alabama and she was actually enslaved. And she heard about the gospel on the plantation in both the formal worship services that her owners would have. Mm. But she also heard about the cultural aspects of the gospel and the oral tradition of, you know, what God was building, what he, what kind, what he was doing around the world in the hush harbors. She was, so she was learning from, you know, from both sides. She was hearing uh, the stories of the Bible. And when she was emancipated, she decided after she, you know, she did very well, actually, after emancipation, she purchased her own home by sewing by, as a seamstress for people in her in her rural town. And she heard 
had heard all her life about this place called Africa and was captivated by it. As a Christian woman, she, she, was, she was older. She was in her 50s when she was emancipated. And so she had gone to a church service as a free woman now. She had gone to a church service, and she heard that William Shepherd preach and give a call to missions. And he was going to Congo, which we would know today as the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm-hmm. At that point, it was the free, free Congo, right? It was before the Belgians um, colonized and King Leopold took over. And so she prayed and she sold her home. That's how she paid for her, her, her mission. This is the Reconstruction period, right? Mm-hmm. This is post-Civil War. And she had purchased a home. She sold that home to be able to pay for her life moving from the States, the United States, to Congo. This was at a time when people would move whole congregations to go and do mission work. Wow. Can you imagine, like, if your church just was like, hey, we're going to fast and pray for a little bit, and then we're going to see what King Jesus says. And then at the end of that period of fasting and praying, your church says, I think we're supposed to go. And everybody says, yeah, I think we're supposed to go. And so the whole church uproots themselves and goes. That is incredible. The trip must not have been easy, given the time. It was not. They went by steamer. You know, of course, you know, the the change in climate, because they were acclimated to the rural South, and then the change in climate and the diseases. But what's significant about this group was this was actually the first African-led mission team, team, because I don't want to discount George Lyle and Phyllis Wheatley, who was the first first actual mission team, but we were still British then. So <laughs> this is the first actual team that was African-American-led wow. by William Shepard. Now, what's interesting about all these folks is the other folks, besides Mariah, who did not have a formal education but was literate and able to translate she worked on a grammar project and gave the Congolese, one of the Congolese groups of people groups that they worked among, gave them their whole grammar written. That was one of their legacies. You're just like, I could not do that with all the modern day conveniences of the internet <laughs> and all the things accessible to me. And she had nothing. That's, <laughs> right. That's, That's incredible. Right. Yeah. I mean, you go through their papers and it's, it's all handwritten stuff. I know you guys are finding this conversation with Karen Ellis so encouraging. And because of that, I want to tell you about another sponsor who helped make it possible, Scriptura. Have you heard of Scriptura? They craft new Bibles with custom leather covers and restore special Bibles that are falling apart. They recently restored my ESV study Bible and Kimberly, one of our team members' Bibles that had deep sentimental value. They were able to restore my Bible with a beautiful leather that is soft and well-crafted, and Kimberly had a strap put on her Bible and chose to have multiple ribbons included so she could save her place as she reads. Scriptura offers lots of different options to choose from. Take advantage of their limited time offer by going to scriptura.co and use the code JOURNEY15 for 15% off your order. They even give a portion of all proceeds to Bible translation work around the world. How great is that? Check them out at scriptura.co and use the code JOURNEY15 for 15% off your order. How did she stand up to some of the injustices that were happening in the Congo? Um, Okay, so she leaves the Jim Crow South, the Black Codes, you know, discrimination against 
her ethnicity, also against her faith because, you know, churches were segregated at that point. So she leaves that the Jim Crow South. She had been an enslaved person herself. Now she's free. What does she do with her freedom? She goes to Congo and they immediately face persecution from the rubber trade, the people doing the rubber trade, and also King Leopold II, who was, look him up. The history that he left was horrific. And so there was uh, essentially a, uh, a pogrom of persecution against Christian missionaries and also uh, local, a lot of local uh, tribespeople in Congo. And so they had a period where they had to flee for safety. Then when they came back, when things settled back down, what she started doing, what Mariah started doing was she started ransoming children, orphans, and she would trade up from the Arab slave trade. And the, the Arab slave trade went on up into, I'd say, the 1970s. Oh, my goodness. Right. There was the transatlantic slave trade that was from the West. There was the Arab slave trade going from the East. And then there was all this mixing going on in the middle. Well, King Leopold comes to power. He starts this horrible, uh, it could be called a genocide against the local people in order to sustain the rubber trade. Okay, so you know how today's conversation is all about where does the cobalt come for our laptops and our phones, our electric cars? Mm -hmm. It comes from Congo hmm. and a few other places. But there's this whole conversation today about ethical mining to get this cobalt. Like, how are these people, these children especially, being exploited for this today? And how can we make this just? Wow. Well, the cobalt of Mariah Fearing's day was rubber. Hmm. Rubber for the tires. Yeah. And so these children were being exploited to manufacture rubber for this burgeoning, this new technology called the automobile. And so she's ransoming children. And so she brings them. They've got to go somewhere. She's buying them with different objects, whatever she can, thread, beads, medicine. And so she's right. Well, now they've got to go somewhere. So she takes them into her own home. And she starts something called the Pentops Home for Girls. Oh. This was a hallmark of the whole team. They have, were known for these faith work projects. The Bible says, you know, the thief comes only in order to steal and, and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. That means that the gospel, they saw the gospel as something that was supposed to infiltrate every area of their lives. And so she was discipling all these young people in her home. Many of them had come from horrific conditions. They were missing body parts. That was one of the punishments that Leopold would inflict on the young people was, well, if you're not working hard enough, you're not working fast enough, you have to lose a limb. Oh my goodness. And then be expected to produce, still produce. Ugh. Right. So, you know, these children, they're, they're traumatized, but they're coming and they're finding the home, their home with this woman. Mm. Who had never, like, okay, this is where I get a little, because this is where my story intersects with mm -hmm. hers, had never had biological children mm -hmm. of her. And yet God satisfied that longing and made her the mother of many. So much that she ends up with, they name her, which for an African-American on the continent is an honor to be named. I've been named in several different countries when you go back and they give you a name and it's precious. It's really precious as a lost daughter or a stolen daughter. So the children give her a name and they give her the name Mama Wa Mputu, 
which means mother from far away. Wow, that is incredible. So she worked well into her late 70s, early 80s. My denomination at that point, which would have been this PCA today, but the PCUS back then, they forced her to retire because she wouldn't leave. Oh, I know you just want to be just like that, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Don't you? (laughs) Her health was failing. And so they said, Mm. you really need to retire. And so she was retired and came back to Selma, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And as a teacher, continued to teach, was honored by the Presbyterian Women's Hall of Fame. It's just such an, I mean, because we're talking now at this point, it's probably the 1920s, 1930s. It's so unusual for an African-American woman to receive that kind of honor in the South. Yes, especially. Yeah. So her story is just so unusual on so many levels that I, I feel like, you know, our kids and our grandkids, they just need to know about these heroes and heroines of the faith. And that, um, you know, the, the series that we're a part of is called Do Great Things for God. And there are so many ordinary people that mark the New Testament whose names we'll never know. Right. They mark the book of Acts, you know, and we just will never, we'll get to see them in glory. Right. But those people are all over history. I mean, to be completely fair, nobody's going to remember our names. If the Lord tarries, nobody's going to remember yep, you yep. 500 years from now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm really getting to the point where I just don't care if my name is written in the history books. Right. As long as it's written in the Lamb's Book of Life and my story is in yeah. there and your story is in there. And Mariah Fearing's story, all the stuff we've missed, and Amy Carmichael, as many books as have been written about her, the whole story still hasn't been told. Right. All those details are in that book of life, and he knows and he sees. Just to encourage young people that God sees them, God knows their deeds, and he's building a kingdom line of people Mm. from Genesis, from our parents in the garden who messed up. God said us, all right, I'm going to keep this. Now, you can't keep this promise, but I'm going to keep this promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. Mm-hmm. He's going to keep that all the way to Revelation when we get around the throne. Mm. And he says, now the dwelling place of God is with men. I am their God. <laughs> mm-hmm. These are my people. And he says it and he he's fulfilled it completely. And he's keeping that promise through all of these unseen saints. Totally. Okay, friends, here's the dilemma that every parent faces. You want to give your kids helpful discipleship resources, but eventually kids grow too old for storybook Bibles. Plus, they've read them a million times. However, their reading level hasn't caught up to adult translations, which are written at a high school level. Kaleidoscope steps into this in-between stage, helping kids and parents bridge the gap between storybook Bibles and adult translations. They retell every book of the Bible at an elementary reading level in beautifully designed single-volume chapter books. Kaleidoscope has volumes on everything from Numbers and Exodus to Matthew and Romans, and they have a new volume out this month, Shadows of the King, the story of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Your children will love exploring the worlds of Samuel and King David in this epic story of God's faithfulness. Check them out at Read Kaleidoscope on Instagram or at readkaleidoscope.com and take 10% off your order with the code JOURNEYWOMEN. Kaleidoscope, the new kid in kids' Bibles. 
Tell me about how, you know, these unseen saints and their stories mm-hmm. encourage you to continue to walk forward in faith. I think about the Christian life as a as a bullseye. <laughs> let me let me explain that. In the center of the bullseye is the only person who's lived the Christian life perfectly. And we know that that's our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? He's the only one who's lived it perfectly. But throughout history, there have been people who've come closer and have lived and named the name of Christ further away from the center of that bullseye, based on the lives that they lived. So my question, studying all these people, has become, how do I live closer to the center of that bullseye. What are the values that these folks had? What were their priorities? What were their acts? There's a, I'm studying a population of one of the first African-led congregations in the Americas, and they're a group of Moravians on St. Thomas Island. And they also were persecuted specifically for their faith, not just for their ethnicity, but for their faith. So we're talking like mid to late 1700s, And they left an incredible legacy. That church that was started in 1732 is still there today. Wow. And I'm like, what were these folks thinking about? What were they doing that brought so much antagonism from the plantocracy, from sometimes their own denomination, from the tribal Africans that were around them? Because they they got it from all sides. They were living the life of Jesus. Some of them gave their lives for it. And their stories are remarkable. So I am learning to uh, to interrogate myself and yeah. ask how can I, how can I leave behind as little toxic waste as possible because I'm you know being still trapped in this body. I'm going to leave some bad stuff behind. But how can I with the infilling of the Holy Spirit how can I leave behind as little as possible and sling forward the kingdom of God and bring others forward and pass a good kingdom ball to the next generation? Yeah, I love that so much. Tell me about Mariah in particular. You know, when I've looked at these different women of the faith through this whole series, it seems like some of them might encourage me even more by way of meditation on scripture or by way of, you know, scripture memory or different disciplines that maybe they really clung to in their respective struggles. Was there something that she really motivated and encouraged you to pick up or to do more faithfully in your kind of spiritual life? I will say this. So we don't have a lot of Mariah's writings. We have a handful of letters. She did do, I think I mentioned this before, she did do a huge uh, project with Althea Edmiston, for whom our center is named, where they basically created the grammatical system for the tribe that they were working with in Congo. So that's a huge thing to leave behind. But behind that is a discipline that was exemplary of African-Americans, you know, just before the turn of that century. Hmm. And where did they learn that? So, okay, William Shepard came from a historically black college called Hampton, where my husband went, actually, and my father, Hmm. too. Now it's Hampton University in Virginia. Mariah did not have formal education, but she was in that ethos. Althea Edmiston had gone to Fisk University, which was another historically black college. Hmm. And the man that she married, that Althea married, who's Alonzo Edmiston, he went to Stillman, 
which was an African-American preacher's college, all of them in the South. And so all of them were these sort of fledgling opportunities and movements toward formal education. And it wasn't just academics. Their concept of whole life education that honors God was what was in front of them. I feel like that just expresses what you are so passionate about. Well, now I'm going to tell you a secret. I'm going to tell you a secret. Tell me. I'm lazy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe that for a second. I'm lazy. I can be lazy. And so what I get to, I could waste some time. Oh, same. Our whole world is set up for our time to be wasted. And we're addicted. Yeah, absolutely. We're actually addicted to wasting time. Absolutely. I completely agree. I know I am the chief of sinners in that regard. Thanks for joining me in my sin. (laughs) Right? So Uh, knowing that and seeing the ethos with which they, I mean, staying up by candlelight in a place where there's no electricity to complete a grammatical system and a language yeah, a written language for a, a people who are an oral people. I mean, that image just sticks with me of how hard they worked to honor the people, this people group that God had created. How hard they were. They translated portions of the Bible, not the whole Bible, but portions of the Bible into into the Luabaluba language. Mm. And so I'm imagining them, and I'm like, oh, God, I just... I have no excuse to be lazy. So they... How hard do they have to work to get the gospel to these people? And it's like, it's so hard for me just to walk over to my neighbor's doorstep, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. So my, my prayer out of that is, God, give me that passion. Give me that same passion and that same discipline to get up and do what I'm supposed to do. Uh, what I've contracted or promised people to do, right? And yeah, because I am, I am lazy. I need, I need, the, I need the hot poker or the Holy Ghost to, <laughs> to poke me every yeah. once in a while and say, you know what, you have work here to do. And the older mm-hmm. you get, I'm telling you, you're going to learn this. The older you get, mm. the more you realize you don't have time is limited. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really looking at. I'm, I'm at the Mariah fearing stage of life. What do I want to spend the rest of my life doing? Mm. I don't want to spend my life doing a thousand inconsequential things. Mm. I really am at Mm. that stage of life where I don't have time for rabbit trails anymore. And I really want to be about the Lord's business. And I wish that I had known this 20 years ago. Mm. I know that'll be such an encouragement to our listeners. And I just want to encourage them you know, if you have little people in your life, this is the gift that you can give them even just in purchasing K.A.'s book and and reading it to them at a young age and taking them seriously. K.A., I remember, you know, Christian biography was so important to me as a young person, and mm. I was really inspired by that. Mm. And I deeply desired to follow through with the motivation, but I felt very belittled by a lot of adults in my life. And so I think we need to take the the little people and their desire to honor the Lord yeah. in whatever way he calls them to very seriously. As Mariah went about that, how did scripture really embolden her? I mean, she faced so many different, you know, challenges with, golly, having, you know, moved across the world at a time when that's not an easy thing to do. And then also facing very real palpable danger in the context in which she was doing ministry. How did the scriptures 
that's another thing I think we can give to our kids is the gift mm-hmm. of just really bolstering their faith with the scriptures. How did the scriptures really strengthen and embolden Mariah for the work that the Lord had set before her? I don't have a specific answer of, you know, which passages were were um, embedded in her heart. But one thing that I, I would assume is that I, and I hear this from others in the, you know, I work with, been working with persecuted church and underground churches for um, more than 20 years now. And they always, their theology is so practical. And yeah. that's one thing that stands out for me about Mariah's theology is not head knowledge. And it's not disconnected from the world that was going on around her. I don't advocate for monasticism at all because I just don't think, I don't see that anywhere in the scripture, especially, and here, here's where I'm going to tie this into scriptures, especially in the book of Acts. Mm. Mariah and her ilk would read the book of Acts and would walk outside and see it happening. Yeah. Incredible. And that makes me want to go, oh, God, give me some of that. Yeah. I want yes. to see the book of Acts come to yeah. life. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Mm -hmm. that is so encouraging. Well, certainly hearing about her story has been one of my simple joys today. It's going to be one of my simple joys as I read it to my girls. I told you I have an eight-year-old girl and a Mm -hmm. six-year-old girl. And that's been part of the joy of being uh, able to write for this series and just mm-hmm. have the books in my home. I had the books in my home before I got to, you know, be invited to to write for the series. And yeah, yeah. they just absolutely so love them. So it's <laughs> such a simple joy for me. Uh, but I'd love to hear from you as somebody who has done so much work just in looking at the lives of Christians from the past. What are some of your simple joys when it comes to studying women in particular, from church history? Hmm. I think the great diversity among yes. them. So funny because, you know, we we latch on to, then this is part of human nature because we just don't like to be pushed to think, and I don't like to be pushed to think in a complex way because, you know, thinking simply is, is easy. But there's so many different ways to be a biblical Christian woman. Mm. And Mariah Fearing and Amy Carmichael, they have a lot in common in their stories, but there's also a lot that's very different about them. Vastly different. And also, you know, even on their, even on Mariah's team, the life that Althea had was very different because she had different gifts Mm-hmm. Than Mariah, you know, so I think it's the the commonality that we have in Christ and that yes. we have in the the way that He's asked us to live, but then the diversity and how He allows us to express that. Yes, and I, I really want to see our girls get set free. You know, my my granddaughter has a little friend, and um, they both love Jesus. They really do. They're Aww. both one's eight, one's seven. And they could not be more different. I mean, my granddaughter is the the little girl who's like, you know, uh, let's go on an adventure. I found these bugs. Let's let's get in the dirt. I mean, she does not being mind. She does not not mind being muddy. She's in a forest school. She will climb a tree, you know. But she's still a girly girl, and she'll do that. all those things. The other little girl, um, who's our neighbor across the street, precious little thing. Um, she's she's she when she gets invited to go on the adventure, she's like, let me get my purse. she'll go on the adventure she has to have her purse she doesn't want to get dirty she doesn't want to have any bugs you know but she's in all these little dance classes and she's they're just there's the lord is shaping them according to how he's gifted them and i i just long to see them 
continue until they're in their 20s, still be yeah. friends, you know, in their 40s and their 60s and still afford each other the, yeah. the latitude to be who God has made them to be. I love that so much. Well, mm. K.A., I'm so <laughs> thankful for all of your work and um, just so inspired by the way that you live. And I thank you so much just oh. for giving us access to these ladies' stories by doing all the hard work of research. I mean, like you mentioned, Amy Carmichael, the problem I had with my research was that there was so many books yeah. I had to read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're having to literally excavate yes. letters from yes. the depths. <laughs> yes. So I love that. And um, I'm just so grateful for all of your, for, for what a labor of love that oh. is. Thank you so much for doing well, that Well, I'm us. glad to be a part of this team with you and a part of this series. It's a really neat series, you know, the yes. people that they're collecting. And um, I'm just so glad that we get to be a part of it together. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the Journey Women podcast and talking about it today. It's been a joy to have you on the show. My pleasure. We pray that this episode challenges you to use whatever God's given you to build His kingdom. If you found this episode helpful, consider sharing our Women of the Faith series with a friend or leave us a review in iTunes or Spotify. And if you're looking for resources we mentioned, like the series K.A. and I wrote for, you can find our Journey Women specific storefront with 10 of those bookstore at the link in our show notes. As always, thanks for listening. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.